It's been a morning of thinking about the cross, and we're not going to change that that much, even though we are in the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 14, then we're going to go backwards to Isaiah 12. We're really looking at a section, Isaiah 13 through 27, but 12 introduces 13, so we're, we're adding it all together. Uh, we're going to read all of Isaiah 12 through 27. No, not really. Some of you are thinking, oh, I'll never get to the Super Bowl. Don't worry, it will be there for hour after hour. We're talking about small faith, great God, the power to change history. I want you to go back with me for a few years. I want you to, to think about this. The year is 1939. The year is 1939. Hitler is mobilizing for this worldwide war, for a war first in Europe that will spread eventually, really, literally around the world. And at that time, there is a young man. His name is Helmut Tillich. And Helmut Tillich, uh, a German young man, has gone through, he's already, he's, he's already gotten another degree in a secular field, but he's, he feels the call of the Lord. He goes into seminary, he graduates from seminary, and he's ordained as a pastor in the same year. And he ends up in a tiny church in Germany. In his youthful enthusiasm and his boldness, the, the, the person who hires him for the church says, what will be your key verse? And this is what he says, Matthew 28, 18 is the key to this church. All authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Then he said, this will be the greatest church that God will use in Germany. He arrived for the first service. And this is what he wrote. First Sunday, first service, consists of three plus me. Two ancient women, brittle and crepe-skinned, and a man even older, the one who hired me, who played the organ with shaking hands. Huddled together, outside we heard the sound of thousands of jackboots, hard as hammers, rhythmic as pistons striking the pavement. It was Hitler's youth corps on the march, and I began to think, all power? Are Jesus' words a farce? Was this a reckless exaggeration? What about me, where I am today? Did I miss something in my training? And Helmut Tillich. Helmut began to, to really doubt for a moment, and he began to read the word again. And he ran across this verse in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. And Helmut began to realize that through the book of Isaiah and into the New Testament, time after time when it seemed that the church was defeated, time after time when it seemed that Israel had been beaten down, God once again would reach down his hand and bring them back. After, after devastation after devastation in, in chapters 13 through 27, six different nations, there's a prophecy that all six of these will devastate decimate Israel, but after that, God will bring Israel back, and he did. And Helmut said, if God can do that for Israel, what can he do for us? And he said to the three of them the next Sunday when they showed up, there were four, and he said, we are going to pray, and God is going to do something amazing in our midst. And this is what Helmut Tillich said, God is, has the power to change history. And when one of the old women laughed at him, and she said, have you not seen what Hitler is doing? 
You know what, folks, today, we could look at our society, we could look at our world, and we could look at Egypt and what's happening with the uprising there and all over the Mideast, and we could get concerned about that, and we could talk politics, and we could talk economics, and we could talk all these other things, but I'm here to tell you today that God has the power to change history one person at a time, and he wants to start with you and me and that little, that little huddle of people in Germany and do something amazing in our lives. As we look at the, at the power of that God has to change history, I want to ask really two questions. And here's the first question. Has God changed co- history completely? Has he done it completely? I mean, we know that he has the power to change some history. If you read through, again, is, uh, Isaiah 13, 14, 15, you'll see that there is this prophecy against Babylon. And in the midst of this prophecy against Babylon, there is this amazing part of it that seems out of place. I want you to read with me Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. I'll read it out loud. You can read it silently. And this is what it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? I believe in this, the midst of this prophecy of Babylon, there is a prophecy that goes far beyond that. I believe that this refers to Satan, to Lucifer, the star of the morning. And there are a lot, there's a lot of debate over that. But when I compare this to passages like Ezekiel 28, 13 through 19, where it talks about a cherub, an angel, who is thrown, uh, who was in Eden, who is then thrown out of heaven. Or I compare it to Luke 10, 18, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Or Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about a dragon that swept a third of the stars. And we believe that those were the angels, the rebellious angels. He swept a third of them out of the heavens and they were flung to the earth. When you compare that finally to Revelation, look at Revelation 20.10. And I guess I should give you the first point. God will triumph at the end of the ages. God will triumph at the end of the ages. Look at Revelation 20.10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I think that so much is parallel to where it says that you're going to be brought down to the grave, to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. And God is going to triumph in the end. It, does, does God, has God changed all of history? Well, we know he's changed the end of the story. We think that he's changed the end of the story from what we read in the Bible. Isaiah 13 through 27 talks about what's going to happen to Babylon, then Assyria, then the Philistines, then Moab, and then this, this, uh, this whole thing with Damascus and the northern uh, part of Israel, this alliance that they have, and then finally Egypt. I was, I was looking at some movie reviews. Uh, there were a couple of movies that I thought I might want to see, and then when I saw what they were rated and saw what they were about, I didn't really want to see them. But they kept having this little thing in there. It's called a spoiler alert. You know what that is? They're going to tell you how the movie ends. And so they're giving you this whole, this is what the movie's about, and then it says, spoiler alert, if you want to know more about this movie, don't read past this part. Spoiler alert. Okay, here's a spoiler alert in case you want to know. 
Here's a spoiler alert in, in the Bible. If you believe in the Bible, in the end, God wins. Satan is defeated. And all of these nations, just like it was prophesied, all of it came to pass. One after another, the nations would rise and then they would, be, they would be brought down. One after another, this happens, and we see it in Daniel, and we see it in other places. God will triumph at the end of the age. And the truth is, there are not too many people that believe in a God that believes that God is not going to triumph at the end of the age. Most people who believe in God say, yeah, in the end, God wins. That's not our concern. The second part of it is the real concern. This is where I say God has triumphed not only at the end of the ages, but number two, God has triumphed here and now, God wins in the end, but now? That's tough for a lot of Christians. Are you sure? There's a 17-year-old, and he's, he's a shepherd boy. In, in our analogy today, it would be like being somebody who picks up your garbage. I mean, it was the worst job. It was, I mean, it's not necessarily a job that everybody would want to have. In Israel, a shepherd was, was kind of the bottom, the, the, the bottom rung. It was, the, it was a job that not a whole lot of people wanted. And there's a 17-year-old shepherd boy, and, and the Lord sends this prophet, and he anoints him. He says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. What if somebody went to a 17-year-old garbage collector in Redding, California, and said, you're going to be the next president of the United States? Would we believe that? Not likely. And what if he started telling everybody that, and the president put the CIA and the hitmen after him? That's exactly what happened to David with Saul. And Saul goes after him, not for a year or two, but tw for 12, 14. It looks like as many as 17 years, David ran from Saul. God has triumphed here and now. There you go, the New Testament, Paul and Silas. They're out preaching and teaching the word, and all of a sudden one day they're falsely arrested. They're beaten just unmercifully beaten with bruises and, and bludgeoned. And then they're put in stocks in this, in this prison in Philippi. And they're there at, the, at midnight and they're singing praises and wor worshiping the Lord, but, but they're still in stocks and they've been beaten. And, and you just think, God triumphs here and now, are you sure? And Isaiah's writing to Israel and they're reading this and at the time that they're reading this, he's saying Babylon's going to come and overthrow Jerusalem and many of you will be taken captive, many of you will be killed in the process and the, the nation as you know it will be destroyed and they're going to say God's going to triumph here now, how? And some of you are looking at your life today and you're saying, really, is God in control? Do you know what's happened to my job? Do you know what's happened to my health? Do you know what's happening in my school? Do you know what's happening in our society? Do you know what's happening in the Mideast? Do you know what's happening? And I'm here to tell you, God triumphs here and now. Because a 17-year-old garbage collector, shepherd boy, became the king. And Paul and Silas, in the midst of the night, had an earthquake that loosed them from their bonds. And Israel was brought back then and has been brought back again now within our generation so that they are a nation and God is still keeping his promises. But victory, God's style, often looks like a sure defeat. Did you get that? Victory, God's style, usually and often looks like a sure defeat. I was having breakfast with uh, Roger Ingham, and we were talking about Gideon and the 300 men with Gideon and the 135,000 135, Midianites and 300 men. 
And I was talking about Gideon, and I was saying, you know, here's Gideon, and, and he has this fleece, and he has another fleece, and he has this proof, and he has this dream, and he has all these other things. And it took all of this to motivate Gideon, and, and Roger had this great insight. This is what he said. Yeah, you think it's tough for Gideon. How about the 300 that Gideon says, here's a pitcher with a, some fire in it. Here's a horn. Stick your sword in your belt. We're going to go out, and we're going to face 135,000. They didn't see the fleece. They didn't have the dream. They just had this crazy guy saying, let's go out and do battle. You get that? It looked like a sure defeat. I love Romans. I, I want to go to Romans chapter 8 for just a minute. I want to read just a couple of verses because this really helps us to understand. Romans chapter 8. What God says about victory is not what we expect him to say. We expect him to, to beat all of our enemies right now, right here, right now. And that's not what he says. Look at Romans chapter 8. Go back to verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Does he say you're not going to have hardship? No. Does he, not, does he say you're not going to have persecution? No. Does he say you're not going to have famine? No. Does he say you're not going to have nakedness where you don't have the clothes to put on your back or danger or sword? No. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We face death every day, he says. We are considered, look at this, as sheep to be slaughtered. And then look what it says in verse 37, Romans 8, 37. Look at what it says. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I, I had you turn to Romans 8 because if you mark in your Bible, underline all. In all, you can underline both of those, in all, not through all or above all or outside of all, but in all of these things. Through them, God is going to make us conquerors. God is going to give us the victory. God is going to change our history in ways that we cannot imagine. He does not say that we will not suffer, but he does say that in the midst of the suffering, God is still in control. You know, that's the story of the cross. We just had communion a few minutes ago, and that's the story of the cross. Do you get that? Do you understand what happened with the cross? Satan thought he had everything defeated. He, he, thought, he thought he had everything going his way. The Pharisees he lined up on his side, and the Sadducees. These two didn't agree about anything, but they both wanted to kill Jesus. The Herodians, those who, who, uh, who went along with Rome and what was going on, the Herodians, they were on the same side as the Pharisees and Sadducees. The scribes and the priests who could not agree many times, they got together. Everybody was against Jesus. Satan thought, the one thing I have to do is kill Jesus, this carpenter, who had an army of what? He had tax collectors, maybe a couple of those, some fishermen, uh, uh, some women who followed him, which were discounted in that society, and especially since some of the women were former prostitutes and had very shady lives. The, this was his army. When, when he's coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he's riding on a white stallion, right? No, he's riding on a little baby donkey, and they're throwing these palm branches, and he's crying as he's riding in because he's weeping over Jerusalem. If you'd been a Roman soldier that day and you'd been sent out to see about this, this conquering king that's coming into the city, you would have laughed. And Satan thought, I finally got what I wanted, Jesus Christ going to the cross. Do you understand that the cross was Satan's Trojan horse? The very thing that he wanted so much was the very thing that defeated him at the cross. 
There was no heroic struggle by Jesus. One servant gets his ear cut off and it's immediately healed. There's no battle. Jesus is taken. He's beaten to the point of death. He's bruised. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, we're told in Isaiah 53. Like a lamb. We love lambs as pets, right? Have you ever been to a petting zoo and petted a lamb? I mean, they're amazing. They're so docile. They're so meek and mild. Everybody loves a lamb as a pet. How many of the NFL teams have the lamb as their mascot? Well, the 49ers maybe should, but... Sorry. Tough crowd. (laughs) No, we don't want to follow a lamb. You know, the, the Kansas City Lambs, come on. That, we're not going to do that. It's the Chiefs. It's the 49ers. It's the, you know, it's, it's all these. We don't have the lamb as our mascot. But one day the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the fallen lamb, the lamb that was slain on our account, will come back. And we will follow him to victory. Our victory is not by political clout. Our victory is not by financial power. Our victory is by the cross. God says we triumph not by the sword, but by the surrender to the slain lamb. Has God changed history completely? The answer to that is absolutely yes. And the second question is, has God changed your history personally? I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. I want you to look at that. Isaiah 12, just six verses. Because this really sets up everything that he's going to say. It's, it's a thanksgiving in the kingdom. It's a triumph in the kingdom. Isaiah 12, 1 says, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord, though you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord, he repeats it for emphasis, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells, plural, of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Has God changed your history personally? Uh, This is a fascinating passage. Just six verses. I want to look at three things. Uh, The first question, have you personalized grace? Have you personalized the grace that's talked about here? We talked about God's wrath and his anger. If you want to know more about it, you can get a CD of last week's sermon because we talked about that last week, or you can go again to the website, cpccreading.org. Yes, we're pushing that today. You can download the sermon for free off of the, the website if you want to do that. God was angry and he judged Israel. Why? Because he came to them, he said, you're my chosen people and this is what I want you to do. And they ignored him. He gave them guidelines. They did not follow them. He asked them to come in relationship with him and they would not do that. They did not believe. They worshiped the idols. They ignored God in their lives. They were the chosen people, but they individually did not do what God asked them to do. What's interesting in, in the Hebrew here, in the first two verses, it says, in that day you will say, but the you there is not plural, it's singular. And so that's why after that you have I, me, and my as the pronouns. You see, in the English language, when we say you, it can be one you or you, y'all, uh, all of you. See, in the South, you have you and y'all. 
You is singular and y'all is plural. And in, in everywhere else in the English language, you is either singular or plural. Okay, in Brooklyn, it's you guys. But everywhere else, it's singular and plural. But in here, it's saying, I want to talk to you individually. For the first two verses, every time he's writing this, it's a personal thing. Listen, just because you live in the United States, just because you attend a church, just because you listen to a radio broadcast or whatever it is, maybe you come from a Christian family, that does you no good. God says, have you individualized, have you personalized this gift of grace that I've given you? It's a personal, individual decision. Look at what Titus 3, 7 says. Here's, here's an, a, an invitation, really. So that having been justified by His grace, again, individually, we might become the heirs having the hope of eternal life. You have an opportunity not to join a church, but to join a family, God's family. Has God changed your, person, your history personally? Have you personalized it? Number two, have you accessed, uh, accessed grace deeply? Have you accessed grace deeply? In verse two, it says, the Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he repeats it. I mean, all of a sudden, as Isaiah is writing, he just goes into this, whoo, the Lord. Did you get this? The Lord is my strength and my song. And later he says, shout to the Lord. Oh, we sang shout to the Lord, didn't we? And he says, shout to the Lord, sing to the Lord. And he says, he's become my song. I mean, this is crazy talk. Have you ever seen uh, the picture Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly? I mean, I know I'm really, that's really old. How many of you have seen that? How many of you have seen it on, on YouTube, some website? There we go. Okay. No. Uh, Gene Kelly in this movie, Singing in the Rain, he, this guy is fully dressed in a suit and the whole business, and he's out, and it's pouring rain, and he's sloshing through the gutter, the rain in the gutter, and then up on the sidewalk, and he's twisting around these light poles. I'm singing in the rain, da-da-da-da-da, and he's just crazy. What would make a grown man in sopping clothes sing this stupid song going through the rain, and what would make him do that? The same thing that would make somebody in Northern California spend hours and weeks sitting down and planning out this great day and then get dressed up in a tuxedo for a couple of hours and go through this thing and have somebody cram cake in their mouth and say, I do and I do and get married. It's the same thing. It's love. Have you accessed God's grace deeply? It says, draw water from the wells, plural. It's not just one well, it's the wells. You know what's so sad? For so many people today, they see this world as satisfaction. They're going to, they have spent hours and weeks and, and maybe even longer than that planning for a party this afternoon. And they've tried to decide what snacks they're going to have and what are we going to wear. And, and they count chairs and how, how many people can we fit in this house and how many can we do and is our screen big enough? They say there are more TVs sold this last week than all the rest of the year. That's crazy. When I went in to get my TV this week, I said, I'm not... I didn't really. I'm just kidding. I mean, it's nuts all that we do for a football game. And the Lord says, you think that your satisfaction is in the world and, and that this Bible is kind of dry and dusty. And, you know, I've tried to read the Bible, Pastor, and it's just so dry and dusty. I just can't seem to get out of it, anything out of it. And Isaiah says, do you not get it? When I come into the presence of God, it's like, like he just... It undates me. He, he just completely 
douses me with this water, and I come in, and I'm, and I'm dry, and I'm thirsty, and the truth is, if you want satisfaction, you find it in this relationship with Jesus Christ. And His Word becomes alive, and you're singing in the rain, and all of a sudden you, you walk out someday and you realize that you're humming a tune, and it's a church tune. It's, it's something that God's put in your heart. I'm in doing physical therapy on my leg, and there's a couple of people working around, and there's this, this other person that's in there, and they're, they're on the bicycle, and they're, they're sweating bullets, and, and I'm thinking, man, I'm so much better off than this guy. Man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my bicycle, and I'm not sweating bullets. I'm, you know, I'm feeling really good about everything. And, and this guy, I found out he's two years older, and he's had his surgery two weeks before me, and I beat him. Yeah. And I'm feeling really good about it. And, you know, he did, we just talked a little bit. He didn't ask me what I, what I did. I didn't ask him what he did. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm really concentrating. I'm doing the exercise. And I'm, you know, I'm looking over now, every now and then. I'm thinking, he's not doing as good on his, his, his calf raises as I am. He's not doing as good on that other thing and, and all of that. Then I noticed something. Under his breath, there was this melody. And he kept singing it over and over and over again. It was amazing grace. And then he got to the, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, ransom me. And like a flood, his mercy flows. And I thought, this guy's having to work a lot harder at rehab than I am. But he has more of a song in his heart than I do. Folks, do you understand? We need to access that grace that God gives us every day, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we are. John 7.38 says it this way, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Is that the kind of person you are? Are you so full of what God is doing that he just, he seems to just bubble out of you every now and then? Have you accessed grace deeply? And here's the last one. Have you discussed grace freely? We get to the end of this. In verse 4 it says, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. And proclaim that His name is exalted. Doesn't sound like we're supposed to keep quiet about what God is, what He's done. There's a, common, a commentary by Raymond Ortland Jr. And this is what he says about uh, verse 6 where it says shout aloud and sing for joy it says make no mistake this celebration is pictured in the strongest terms it is hilarious it's loud it's delighted it's unabashed joy for the holy one it is a joy in in the lord that just seems to erupt within the writer he says shout aloud and sing for joy you know when we come to church we should be quiet and we should look very somber and we should never shout and rejoice. That's not what the Bible says. Read Psalm 150 again. It says praise Him with cymbals. Praise Him with loud cymbals. And it says to sing and to use these other instruments and to, and to praise the Lord. We should, we should discuss grace. We should, we should let other people know that we have the grace of God within our life. 
And on that day when I was having the physical therapy, I went to this guy and I said, you must obviously know the Lord. And he says, yes. He says, yeah, I, I know the Lord. And he says, was my song bothering you? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't singing it earlier. And, and, I, and I said, you know, that was awesome that you did that. And one of the technicians that was there, she said, well, I'm a Christian. I go to neighborhood. And he was telling me where he was going. And, and all of a sudden we were having this little, there was a gathering of believers in the midst of this. And I thought, this is what God wants. It's, an, it's not enough for us to come to de- together today on Sunday morning and say we believe in Jesus Christ. People all around us should know this. Colossians 1.6 says, all over the world, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. And I love this. Look at what it says at the very end. Shout aloud in verse 6. Shout aloud, sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. They had the tabernacle where the presence of God was, and then they had the temple where the presence of God was, and one of the great heartburns that Israel had spiritually is what happens if the temple is defeated? What if, what if it's destroyed? What if somebody comes in and takes our temple away and God says, you don't get it. I've always been among you. I've always wanted to be a part. I want you to recognize who I am and what I'm doing. I want you to be to realize that I'm there with you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he says to Israel. And he repeats it again in Hebrews for us in the New Testament. God says, I'm there. And when we didn't know for sure, Jesus Christ came to be among us, the Holy One of Israel. God's not content to stand off at a distance. Helmut Tillich and his little band of believers fought through the whole World War II time. And the church grew little by little. And they harbored some fugitives from some of the Jewish people and some of those who had helped the Jewish people and they helped get them out of the country. The church never became a, a mega church, a super church, but uh, Helmut Tillich, because of his faithfulness to that church, a few years after the war, was given another church, and he became a pastor, and the church grew to 1800. And Helmut Tillich became one of the leading Christians to help Germany after World War II come back to the faith, come back to know who Jesus Christ was. And he was a strong voice, and he became a professor and a pastor, and he lived to 1989. And time after time after time, when it seems like there was a sure defeat, God has said, I will change history. I ran across an article. It was written uh, November 27, 2009. It was on the 20th anniversary of the the fall of Czechoslovakia. And this is what the article said. On November 27, 1989, a spontaneous celebration burst out all over Czechoslovakia. Communism had fallen, monuments were toppled, old women, prisoners, pig farmers, dock workers, all and more had prayed for this moment. Many of of the, the faithful in the church suffered for it. In fact, many of the faithful died for it. And on that day, November 27, 1989, church bells that had been silent for 45 years 
They were mandated never to ring the bells of the church again because that called out that Christ might be successful, that the church might be viable, that God might be in control. On that day, after silent for 45 years, every church that had a bell in Czechoslovakia, exactly at the stroke of 12, without anyone orchestrating it, began to ring the bells. And all over Czechoslovakia, pigeons flew out of the belfries, and people were startled, and they looked at the church, and they knew that today something has changed. This is an article. It's not written by Christians. It's written by the AP News Service. And they said, on that day, one of our reporters noticed something that at the time we did not understand the reference. On the lawn, in front of a church in Prague, Czechoslovakia, someone had staked a handwritten sign made out of a cardboard sign, and it had three simple words that simply said, The Lamb wins. Let's pray. Father, you are in charge. You've always been in charge of all history. And you know what's happening. So today, Father, we acknowledge that too many times we're trying to draw water out of the wrong wells, the wells that we think will satisfy, that you've said are broken cisterns that leak and they'll never give satisfaction. We're trying to find our satisfaction somewhere else. Or we think that as a group we've been blessed, so it doesn't matter what we do individually. And we've never accessed your grace deeply. Ah, Father, forgive us. Because the Lamb still wins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lamb of God, who was slain on our behalf, won for us freedom from eternal death, eternal judgment. And one day he will come back and win for us total and complete freedom to reign with him forever. Thank you, Father, for that freedom, for that victory, for changing our history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.